deep dive into authoritarianism and corruption in the era of Trump. I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein. Senator Bob Corker warned the New York Times recently that Donald Trump's reckless threats toward other countries could set the nation on the path to World War III. Hence the theme of today's episode, nuclear war. How could we get there? What might it look like? With me today is security journalist Ankit Panda, host of The Diplomat podcast for The Diplomat website, and the author of numerous articles about nuclear issues. Ankit, welcome to the program. Happy to be here, Lindsay. Good to be back with you. Senator Bob Corker says he fears that Trump could lead us into World War III. What are some of the ways that could happen? So, I mean, the most likely uh, scenarios for a global war involving the United States you know, would likely involve other great powers, certainly adversarial great powers like China and Russia. But I think the two main flashpoints that I worry about, at least the main flashpoint I worry about the most is North Korea, um, where tensions have been very hot this year, and they've gotten hotter since we last spoke on this show. And now I guess uh, Iran, uh, with the latest news about the nuclear deal, um, this administration does have quite a degree of animus towards Iran, and that could um, come to express itself in concerning ways. Like we could see the collapse of that nuclear deal and potentially um, a spiral from there into an Iranian nuclear breakout, broader proliferation across the Middle East, um, and potentially a larger conflict. It's it's difficult to know exactly, you know, how, what kinds of scenarios Corker meant when he was talking about World War Three. The odds of a total war like World War Two or World War One are scarce these days, precisely because of nuclear weapons. Uh, Russia and the United States still have hundreds of nuclear weapons pointed at each other, and that reduces the scope for um, a total all-out conflict between them. But that also doesn't mean that uh, lower-level uh, hostilities couldn't break out between them. What would it mean, do you think, for planetary survival if the nuclear taboo were broken? Because sometimes people say, oh, well, it would just be a regional conflict to begin with. But then what would happen after we know that nuclear weapons are on the table? Um, so, yeah, so nuclear weapons have been used just twice, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, August 6th and August 9th, 1945. They've been tested significantly more times. They've been tested over 2,000 times by human beings, but they haven't been used in conflict since the Second World War. And a lot of analysts of nuclear weapons refer to the existence of a taboo against their use. It's particularly why a lot of people concern themselves that Certain countries, uh, notably Pakistan, but maybe even the United States, are looking to build lower-yield nuclear weapons that may be, um, quote-unquote, more usable. Um, so, you know, this is all a cause for concern. Um, certainly, there are several states in the world that maintain a nuclear first-use posture, which means that they would use nuclear weapons first in a conflict to protect their own security. And the United States is actually among these states. Uh, it does not have a no-first-use posture, unlike, say, India or uh, China. So uh, North Korea actually is a good case to discuss here. It's a small nuclear state, small arsenal. It's quite insecure overall. And, you know, I've been looking at North Korea's nuclear strategy. I've been doing um, a lot of writing and research on this with um, Vipin Narang, who's a political scientist scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who specializes in nuclear strategy. And the two of us really, uh, you know, think that it's rational for North Korea to posture itself to use nuclear weapons first in a conflict. So that's one of the, you know, if you ask me today in October 2017, where I think the nuclear taboo is most likely to be broken first, it's, it's probably, uh, you know, on the Korean peninsula where North Korea would use nuclear weapons first if it detected any attempts at preemption by South Korea and the United States. But, you know, other, other cases that I have worried about include uh, South Asia, where you have India and Pakistan, two neighbors with plenty of nuclear weapons. And Pakistan certainly has a, f a first-use posture, and it has low-yield weapons that it would look to use early in a crisis. So, you know, these are some of the ways I can see the nuclear taboo potentially being broached. But obviously, um, I hope that we don't have to get there. 
Can you elaborate? You and Vipin had a great piece in War on the Rocks where you talk about the logic behind why we're so worried about the nuclear taboo breaking down on the Korean peninsula. Sure. Um, so let's talk a bit about you know Kim Jong Un's nuclear strategy. I alluded to it briefly. Um, so North Korea uh, is a a conventionally inferior state. It has uh, it has massive conventional forces, but in terms of its technology, uh, it would be crushed pretty effectively in a war with the United States, South Korea, and Japan. Um, deterrence on the Korean Peninsula has held even without North Korean nuclear weapons. This was because Seoul is just within uh, you know twenty five to thirty five miles of the demilitarized zone within artillery range from North Korea. So North Korea has been able to hold South Korea's most populous city at risk since the end of the Korean War. And that's prevented a breakout of war since the United States and South Korea are are tempted to avoid a first strike on North Korea precisely because North Korea would be able to retaliate. There's no way that both sides would be able to eliminate all of these artillery systems early on in a conflict. With North Korea's nuclear weapons, though, uh, its its strategy is quite clear. North Korea, I think, is a rational state. People disagree, but I'm pretty sure that they're a rational state. There's no evidence to suggest that Kim Jong-un isn't at least means-ends rational. He desires uh, you know, he's young, he wants to survive, he wants himself to, he wants to see himself grow old and continue to rule North Korea. And plenty of North Korean elites, I'm sure, agree with him, uh, especially the senior members of the regime who benefit from the Kim regime's continued hold over over the country. Um, so to do this, Kim Jong-un has built himself a nuclear deterrent. And, you know, he hasn't done this alone. His father helped, his grandfather helped. And today, his uh, nuclear posture is very clear. Uh, if North Korea detects South Korea and and the United States attempting to preempt either its nuclear weapons or um, attempting or even succeeding at decapitating Kim Jong-un, North Korea would use its nuclear weapons to strike targets in Japan, South Korea, uh, Okinawa, Guam, basically everything in the Northeast Asian theater. And you'll note that this doesn't include the U.S. homeland. That's where its new ICBM comes in, which we first saw tested in July this year. The ICBM gives North Korea um, insurance in, in certain scenarios. I don't want to conflate the decapitation scenario where Kim Jong-un is killed by South Korea and the United States or just by the United States early on with a more conventional preemption scenario. In the preemption scenario, North Korea would strike first and to deter the United States from just coming in and flattening the country, which you know, the United States would be very easily capable of doing, North Korea would continue to hold U.S. cities at risk. So this is after, you know, it's already nuked military targets in the Northeast Asian theater. It would say, um, it would effectively, you know, draw a line saying that if if you retaliate against us and you try to flatten us, we will launch all the ICBMs that we have at U.S. cities. And, you know, there is a question of whether this will work. At this point, we're already in completely uncharted waters. Nuclear weapons have been used against South Korea and Japan, U.S. allies. Is it realistic that the United States would stand down? I don't think it's too likely. I think that retaliation would still go forward and we would rely on systems like missile defense, which is very imperfect, to uh, save us from these ICBMs. But, you know, this is this is all, you know, very speculative and hypothetical, but this is how a nuclear war with North Korea would really play out, given what we've seen out of Pyongyang. And can you um, elaborate on why it is that leaders such as Kim, who are really all about regime survival in this kind of inferior position, have such itchy trigger fingers and why it's so risky for Trump to be openly baiting him like he does on Twitter? Sure. Um, not only, you know, so I mean, Part of it is that North Korea has a fairly limited and small nuclear arsenal for now. We think they have about enough fissile material, which is the uh, plutonium and highly enriched uranium necessary to create bombs. We think they have enough of that for 60 bombs 
right? But we we don't know how many delivery systems they have. A delivery system is being, you know, jargon for their missiles. So we don't actually know how many of those long-range missiles they have in their inventory. And the two new missiles that they've been showing off this year, uh, the Hwasong-12, which is an intermediate-range ballistic missile with a range of probably around four, four and a half thousand kilometers, depending on the payload, and the Hwasong-14, which is the ICBM, which is capable of striking uh, U.S. homeland targets, may have a range of up to maybe 11,000 kilometers, could probably reach me here in New York City, where I'm doing this podcast from. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, those systems still haven't been declared operational. Kim Jong-un hasn't given the order to mass produce those systems. I suspect that that's a matter of months away. They're continuing to test these systems. They're fairly happy with the reliability. The Hwasong-12 encountered some failures back in April, but it may be um, it may be ready to go soon. And um, the Hwasong-14, meanwhile, uh, I think we're anticipating a test of that system quite soon. They've already been flying these missiles over Japan. But anyways, you know, going back to the itchy trigger finger question, is that if you're Kim Jong-un and you know that you are every single day you're vulnerable to a decapitation strike you're uh, you're vulnerable to conventional defeat by um you know preemption from the united states and south korea you know you're going to be watching for signs that an attack is coming because your only way to survive the only rational way you can behave in that situation is to use your nuclear weapons first. That's the only way where there's a possible scenario, you know, even a probability greater than 0 that you make it out of that alive. So that's why it's so dangerous for Trump to be, you know, threatening North Korea with total destruction, you know, creating these really confusing hints. I mean, ambiguity can be a feature, not a bug for deterrence, but confusion is definitely, uh, you know, the enemy of deterrence. Confusion does not help the United States to turn North Korea today. And there's a lot of confusion. So um, one of the things I think, um, you know, really worries me is that, you know, we're flying these B-1B conventional bombers near North Korean airspace. Those bombers are equipped with standoff missiles that are very precise and deadly, um, even if they're non-nuclear. They could be used to cause potentially catastrophic damage to North Korea's leadership. And, you know, combined with Trump's rhetoric, that leaves me worried about the possibility that North Korea could severely miscalculate and um, initiate a nuclear war. And how do they know where Kim and the leadership is at any given moment? Is that something we have good intelligence on or it's fairly easy to figure out? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm guessing that out of the thousands of members of the intelligence community in the United States, a significant portion are devoted to uh, 24-7 surveillance of important sites and individuals in North Korea. So I suspect we keep a pretty close tab on Kim Jong-un, where he is at all times. Um, he tends to travel not in his primary limousine. He actually sometimes uses decoys because he's paranoid that the United States is watching him. So there are uh, you know rumors that Kim prefers to travel with uh, junior officials to certain missile observation sites or inspections across the country. But generally, you know, uh, there we, I think, have a pretty good idea of where Kim Jong-un is. Um, there are hardened sites in Pyongyang that would be used by North Korea's leadership in a nuclear war, you know, deep underground sites that would require nothing short of nuclear weapons to really penetrate and destroy them. So, um, you know, it, it isn't a matter of simply you know, picking apart Kim Jong-un early, early in a, early in a conflict. So there are severe ambiguities there. You know, there's always the chance that the United States attempts a decapitation strike, which would be devastating. It would have to be a bolt out of the blue. We probably wouldn't even inform allies in South Korea and Japan. It would have to be a total bolt out of the blue attack. It would have to be what 
nuclear strategists in the Cold War called a splendid first strike, which means that the United States would seek to not only take out the leadership, but they would also seek to take out all nuclear weapons uh, that North Korea possessed. And whatever they didn't possess, they would try to mop them up using missile defense. But there is always a chance that that decapitation strike fails. You know, we don't kill Kim Jong-un and he's able to give the order to retaliate immediately with the ICBMs. You know, I mean, it's not even a matter of waiting until the um, the conflict escalates. So, you know, there are all these dangerous war fighting scenarios. And, you know, I, I don't want to spook listeners. This is just all very grim kind of, you know, game theoretical thinking about how some of this might play out if it ever did come here. But look, I mean, I just want to emphasize that the probabilities of any of these scenarios playing out is very low. What about a hypothetical scenario in which Kim just dies and it wasn't us, we didn't assassinate him? Do we have good enough communication with North Korea to talk ourselves out of a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's certain variables that would come into play in a situation like that. For example, uh, you know, did he just die in his sleep? Is he suspected of being poisoned? I mean, I suspect the North Koreans' leadership would not immediately assume that the United States had successfully poisoned Kim Jong-un or something. It would really depend on the conditions. You know, a, a car accident might be more suspicious. So it would really depend on how specifically that happened. But you raise a good point. Um, one of the things that Vipin and I are Looking into, uh, we wrote an article on this for War on the Rocks too, is the issue of command and control in North Korea, which is uh, how North Korea chooses to secure its nuclear arsenal and how it chooses to issue orders for their use. Uh, these are questions that, you know, new nuclear states particularly have to contend with. It's, you know, how do you set up a nuclear control regime? And with North Korea, I think, um, you know, we were pretty confident that at least in peacetime, they don't pre-delegate their use, which means that Kim Jong-un hasn't given standing orders to you know, missile crews with the Korean People's Army telling them that they can use nuclear weapons if they see it fit. That would be a pretty poor strategy for Kim because, you know, depending on the individual twitchiness, I guess, of a uh, missile crew, he could initiate a nuclear war when he didn't really mean to. So in peacetime, we think the control is quite assertive, uh, which means that Kim Jong-un, uh, assertive and centralized. So Kim Jong-un would have to give the uh, the valid order for the use of nuclear weapons. And North Korea has actually made this clear. Um, they made this clear, I think, in 2013 for the first time that Kim Jong-un, you know, remains the only authority in the whole country that can authorize nuclear use. But the question is, you know, what happens in a crisis? North Korean uh, communications infrastructure, I imagine, is not particularly great that, you know, at least to the point where they would feel comfortable entirely uh, leaving the nuclear codes, so to speak, with Kim Jong-un in a conflict. I mean, if the United States cut off North Korea's communications infrastructure, used electronic warfare to leave missile crews sort of disconnected from the central leadership, would the protocols change effectively? Would it uh, come down to those crews then deciding how the missiles should be used and when they should be used? And, you know, how does this apply to things like North Korea's nuclear submarine, which has a, a whole other set of con uh, considerations? So, you know, these are some of the questions that... They have one specific submarine? They have just one right now that's operational, yes. Uh, Where does it go, usually? It doesn't go anywhere, actually. It just kind of sits at port. Uh, it sometimes sails out uh, for just a few patrols. But it's kind of, uh, you know, most people, I think, don't see them. I think, you know, my, I mean, my read is that it's kind of a bureaucratic and prestige thing for them. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. what nuclear states do, you know. I mean, nuclear states first build missiles and bombers if they're larger states. North Korea doesn't have bombers. But, you know, they also build submarines down the line, and it's quite prestigious to have a sea-based nuclear deterrent. So I think North Korea probably fell into that. And, you know, they they take tips from China's nuclear development program, too. And it's actually interesting. Their submarine-launched missile, um, they actually ported that to land earlier this year. In February, they carried out a test of a new missile system that was basically their submarine missile 
stuck on a truck on land. So, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on there. But, you know, going back to the command and control question, I think, you know, we don't have good answers for that. Uh, I don't have good answers for that. North Korea hasn't given us good answers for that. But it's something that, you know, anybody advocating for a devastating preemptive war would really have to take into account. I mean, there's no way. Look, I mean, you know, I just think that the, all of these military options are absolutely terrible. They're they're way worse than all of the alternatives, which are, you know, non-military options ranging from continuing to sanction them, continuing to um, try to open talks with them, or even, you know, entering into diplomatic negotiations, potentially even just opening up military to military channels. I think that would be a huge saving grace right now, preventing kind of this slide into um, into these uh, some of these dangerous scenarios. We've talked about what would happen if Kim were to believe Donald Trump. Another theme that you explore in the or on the rocks piece is what would happen if our allies don't believe Trump that he's serious about nuclear war. What could be the consequences of that? Um, so yeah, allied reassurance is has always been tricky. You know, there's this great saying that the reason that the United States has nuclear weapons is that, uh, or at least, you know, 90% of the U.S. nuclear arsenal exists to reassure allies, 10% of it exists to deter the United States enemies. And, you know, this has been true in Northeast Asia. South Korea and Japan, you know, are known as particularly skittish allies. They need a high degree of reassurance from the United States, which is why we've been carrying out, you know, shows of force, why we've been um, flying these bombers regularly. I mean, you can't do these bomber flights secretly, right? That's why the U.S. Air Force and Pacific Command put out these kind of beautiful photographs of these bombers flying and uh, you know they'll make very public shows of this it's not uh, there's two audiences for these flights you know one of them is the North Koreans we want to show them that we have the capability to strike them but the other uh, more important audience I think is actually the allies in, in, in Tokyo and Seoul who need to see that the United States remains committed to taking the fight I mean one of the one of the reasons the North Korean ICBM specifically is such an interesting development is because it introduces what you know Cold War historians called decoupling. Uh, and uh, decoupling is essentially this old idea. Uh, you know, in the Cold War, it was Bonn, London, Paris remained concerned that once the Soviet Union acquired its own ICBMs and could hold New York and Washington at risk, that the United States would no longer credibly be considered, you know, willing to commit itself to a land war or a limited war in Europe. Because the minute it does that, the Soviets could retaliate against the U.S. homeland, right? So that homeland threat really introduces new dynamics to how allies see U.S. credible commitments. So, you know, we're kind of facing that old Cold War problem in Northeast Asia. And I'm not sure that the Trump administration has figured out how to conclusively answer that question. Basically, so deterrence been... might work against us, essentially, or on us. Yeah. That's what our allies are worried about. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, deterrence has a cold, hard logic. It's a universal language. Just because you're the United States, just because you spend, you know, know, 600 to 700 billion dollars a year on defense doesn't mean that this tiny country with its own nuclear armed ICBM won't cause you to think twice from <laughs> taking certain actions. And I think this is a really big part of what's going on in the United States right now. It's why we're seeing these weird statements out of the Trump administration. I mean, you know, leaving Trump aside himself, because I think he's a bit of a He's a bit of a corner case, but, uh, you know, like guys like McMaster, Tillerson, Mattis even have been, you know, a little bit struggling with this idea that the United States is facing essentially its first nuclear armed intercontinental range capable adversary since China about 50 years ago when China, you know, paired its thermonuclear device with its first ICBM. So th this is a problem that the United States simply hasn't been used to thinking about. I mean, we got very used in the Cold War to thinking about a very close peer superpower adversary, the Soviet Union, which had about as many nuclear weapons as we did and was essentially, you know, we had arms control arrangements and there was a degree of mutual respect that, you know, the United States never really rose 
wrote off Russia as sort of a, you know, basket case of a country that we weren't willing to take seriously as a nuclear adversary. In fact, the only reason I think, you know, nuclear arms control was ever a serious possibility was because we did the precise opposite. But with North Korea, you know, there's this kind of fantasy that there's this, you know, there's this poor backward country in Northeast Asia. They're a totalitarian communist monarchy, essentially, right? I mean, the Kim dynasty is effectively a monarchy. Um, it's like, we're not going to allow them to deter us, the mighty United States. So there's this resistance right now. I mean, McMaster has said that he doesn't think classical deterrence theory can apply to Kim Jong-un because he's a brutal violator of human rights. But, you know, we said the same thing about but Mao. But doesn't, ha- doesn't he have to say that? <laughs> Uh, no, he doesn't have to say that. I think, you know, I think, uh, I mean, he might have to say that if he's trying to not get fired by President Trump, you know, Trump might take offense if McMaster concedes potentially that Kim Jong-un is rational. But that's really concerning to me. You know, if, if somebody like McMaster, who is, you know, something of a scholar soldier, he wrote a great book about the Vietnam War called Dereliction of Duty, he knows, I mean, you know, he knows better. I, I think he knows that North Korea isn't actually a irrational actor. <laughs> And, and I mean, the argument he was making was just entirely unconvincing to me. I mean, the Soviet Union and China were brutal in, you know, on a similar order of magnitude, if we're talking about the brutality, you know, under Stalin and certainly under Mao um, in the 50s and 60s, uh, and even later in the Soviet Union and China. But, you know, North Korea, uh, just because it's a terrible violator of human rights doesn't mean that it can't be deterred. And the North Koreans are actually, you know, one of the advantages of their um, highly hierarchical totalitarian system of government is that they they can exercise message discipline in the way in a way that the United States simply can't right now, and you know that might even have been a problem under a different U.S. administration, um, but the Trump administration in particular has been really bad at this. I mean, we are not doing deterrence well. We are creating confusion. Uh, there are several messages coming out, and it's just not a you know the North Koreans are confused about what to expect, and that's and that's very dangerous. Do you think Trump qualifies as means ends rational at this point? I mean, I'm not insinuating that he's psychotic or delusional, but he seems to have such bad general cognitive hygiene that I sometimes wonder whether he actually counts as someone who we can model as if he's pursuing rational means to understood ends. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Let me put it this way. I feel more confident saying that Kim Jong-un is means end rational than (laughs) than I do saying that Trump is means ends rational. I mean... It's very difficult to have a unified theory of how Donald Trump thinks about the world. Generally, he seems to like, you know, very kind of crude, masculine traits. He likes big things. He likes to be strong. And he doesn't really seem to like having his behavior constrained, right? And if there's anything that's true about deterrence is that... Uh, you know, your behavior is being constrained by an adversary in some ways. At least your adversary has laid down a line that if you cross it, he will, uh, he or she will exact terrible damage on you, right? So yeah. that that logic, I'm not sure, speaks to uh, Trump in a very clear way. And, you know, there's um, other things, and this is actually an article that Vipin and I have in train right now that's coming out early next week, but it's about this interview that he did just recently with uh, Sean Hannity where he said that, you know, oh, U.S. missile defenses are 97% effective. And that is so far from, you know, the facts that it's it's seriously concerning. I mean, if if you think that the United States has missile defenses that are that good, you'll feel invulnerable, you know? And someone like Trump who likes to be strong and big and is super insecure generally, I mean, if he believes US missile defenses are that good, you know, he'll be like, yeah, whatever. We're we're going to we're going to take our chances, take out Kim Jong Un. Okay, maybe he gets a nuke off. 
on Japan or South Korea. Well, whatever, they're not Americans. We don't really care about that. But at the end of the day, you know, we'll solve this problem of、uh, of nuclear armed North Korea and we'll denuclearize them by force. I mean, that's the kind of logic that I think. Exists in my mind, which is why I'm not fully confident saying that you know Trump is means ends rational at this point.、Uh, you know, I think Kim Jong Un has made that a little bit clearer to me. How good is our missile defense at this point? If you had to put a number on it, sure. I've actually been crunching the number on this. I've been doing the math because I actually wanted to figure out how on earth Trump got to that 97 percent number.、Um, so in his interview with Hannity, he basically implies. So actually, let me let me rewind a bit. So the U.S. has one missile defense system. In operation right now, that is capable of striking ICBM targets.、So、there's a lot of kind of myths and misunderstanding about what missile defense is. You know, people talk about layered missile defense, where a range of systems can take shots at one enemy projectile, but that's not true. We have separate missile defense systems for separate classes of adversary missiles, and each system is designed to engage these incoming missiles in a certain stage of their flight. Even it's a very kind of, I mean, it's just a. Super difficult precision task, and you know it's a miracle that it works even some of the time, right? I mean, to、uh, to give credit to the engineers that work on these missile defense systems, it is a freaking difficult task to strike.、Uh, you know, we, we use kinetic interceptors, so these are literally you know tiny objects colliding with other tiny objects on a on a celestial scale. These things are tiny, even though a missile might look big to us compared to a you know compared to the size of a person. But our missile defense systems, we have you know ground based interceptors that are part of the ground based mid course. Defense system in Fort Greely, Alaska. These would be the missiles that we would use to take out North Korea's Hwasong 12. And Trump thinks that if we fired one of those missiles at an incoming North Korean ICBM, we would have a 97% shot of taking out the North Korean missile. That's false. We would have something closer to a 50% chance. And you know that sounds bad. But our current concept of operations for these interceptors is to use four of them against a single North Korean incoming missile, and so you know、um, I'm not going to bore our listeners with the probability calculations, but you know these are independent probabilities for each four of those interceptors. So if you do the math that the Missile Defense Agency uses. Over four interceptors. If you assume four interceptors, you assume one incoming ICBM. You can massage the numbers depending on how effective you think one of those missiles is. For example, if you up the success rate of one interceptor to fifty-six percent, you can actually get to that ninety-seven percent number. But that's again super misleading, since Trump was suggesting that one of those interceptors has a ninety-seven percent capability. You know, more realistically, also we're never going to be facing just one North Korean ICBM, right?、Um, that's what I was going to ask next. Is they've got forty, right? Uh, they might, well no so they have、uh, f- you know they have forty to sixty bombs but ICBMs they have fewer they'll probably end up with a nuclear force that in my opinion will have maybe eighteen to twenty four ICBMs maybe that maybe that's even too many I think they're ultimately going to adopt a minimum deterrent posture because they're a poor country they want to use just what they have to use to be secure and secure in their own survival but yeah I mean in wartime you know they're going to throw every- everything they've got at us and、uh, you know we're going to run out of interceptors faster than they run out of ICBMs and not only that. We spent, you know, we spent forty billion dollars on this system,、uh, where each interceptor is about as good as a coin toss. And、uh, you know,、uh, I mean, forty billion dollars is a lot of money. It's almost twice, or you know, almost twice North Korea's GDP.、Um, but you know, we're still going to run out of these missiles faster than they can add additional ICBMs. I mean, it's just a, it's just a loser's game. The the attacker will continue to have the advantage over over the defender here. So missile defense isn't really a way to kind of dig us out of this ICBM. Threat hole.、Uh, we're going to have to accept that we're vulnerable to North Korean strike. I mean, that's the whole point. That you know, whole point of North Korea's program. They want us to take the hint on deterrence, and we, they want us to give them certain things. Obviously, I mean, this isn't a case of North Korea just wanting to be left 
alone to its own devices, you know, they'll eventually use this to probably come to the negotiating table and negotiate from a point of strength. So, you know, this will have real consequences. Let's talk a little bit about the Iran deal, which is kind of hanging in the balance as we speak. Can you give us a quick recap of uh, where things stand? Yeah, sure. I'm still I'm still digesting uh, Trump's speech today. I, I caught it a bit and I commented a little on Twitter. So he did decertify it. He did designate the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps um, under an executive order on terrorism, which isn't the same as declaring it a foreign terrorist organization, but uh, it, it gets most of the way there and it is provocative. The Iran deal won't it doesn't necessarily need to collapse as a result of decertification. Decertification is a congressionally imposed requirement on the president as part of the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act in NARA. Uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran deal, has a range of other provisions that could lead to the United States unilaterally abrogating the deal, removing itself from the deal, and effectively ending the deal. Decertifying still sends a terrible message. It gets the ball rolling. Trump has effectively passed the buck now to Congress to take action in reimposing sanctions. If Congress succeeds, um, and this is a big if, right, because we're counting on Congress to actually get something done here. So this is a big if. But if, if Congress does succeed in reimposing those sanctions, the United States would be found in violation of the Iran deal. And that leads to a very dangerous place where that deal could collapse entirely and Iran could decide to revert its nuclear research and development activities, um, return all of its deactivated centrifuges. Obviously, I think the Iran deal has already done quite a bit to deprive Iran of fissile material. Uh, so it's breaking out time is potentially already longer than it was without the Iran deal. But I think it leads down the road to a dangerous place where Iran and the United States relations get worse and Iran continues along a, a nuclear path. There is a possibility, though, that Russia, China, and um, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom, the remainder of the so-called P5 plus one, would be able to sustain the agreement with Iran. And Iran has made it clear that it won't be the first one to violate the deal or pull out of the deal. So what does decertification mean from a technical standpoint? It just means that the president says under the INARA requirement, the, the congressional requirement, where he's required to say every 90 days if Iran is complying with the deal. Uh, the president has, has said that he doesn't believe that Iran is complying with the agreement. So the president is just refusing to say anymore or he's saying that Iran is not in compliance? Um, he's, uh, well, he's saying it, yeah, he is saying that Iran is not in compliance, but he's saying that effectively to Congress. Um, he's not, he's not referring, uh, so the JCPOA does have dispute resolution mechanisms. There's an advisory board, for example, that can address disputes from any of the parties, be it Iran or be it one of the P5 plus one, including the United States. Trump has not taken any action through that route, but there is, you know, a, a unilateral, you know, any any of the Iran deal actors, any of the P5 plus one could unilaterally decide to refer this, for example, to the Security Council, where then the Security Council will have to pass an affirmative resolution saying that whatever the dispute was that caused this referral in the first place had been had been successfully resolved. And if the council failed to do that, uh, in a matter, I think I think it's 30 plus five. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but in, in some number of days, it's not a very long time. All of the old UN resolutions against Iran would snap back into place. That's what's called the so-called snapback provision. But Trump hasn't done any of this. He hasn't actually taken those steps that would start the clock ticking on the JCPOA's enforcement mechanisms. So do you think that he just wants a cosmetic thing to say that he decertified it because it sounds impressive? 
So, I mean, you know, I think that's one way of looking at it. I mean, um, you know, this to me seems like the DACA play, right? I mean, he gets to do this big kind of executive action that looks good to his base. It makes him look strong. You know, he's standing up to the Ayatollah when Obama let him have, you know, pallets of cash or whatever Fox News says about the Iran deal. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, Congress will have to take action. And like I said, I don't think that that's a, a foregone conclusion that Congress will be able to you know, get its act together and, you know, reimpose sanctions on Iran. So uh, it it is possible that we make it out of this with the JCPOA intact, with Trump having decertified it. And then, you know, the problem is Inara does remain in place and we'll, we'll just come back to this problem again. Overall, you know, I mean, my prognostication is that the Iran deal does look to be in a fairly precarious position after this decertification. It's not, it's not a given that we're going to lose the Iran deal, but uh, certainly I think latest events have made that a lot more likely. How does this look from the Iranian side? I mean, what are what is domestic politics in Iran going to do in response to Trump having pulled the decertification trick? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a way, I think the decertification will vindicate many hardliners in Iran who have um, not been a fan of the Iran deal. And, uh, you know, even if some of them have given um, Rouhani the benefit of the doubt on negotiating with the United States in exchange for sanctions relief, especially combined with this designation of the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, it's going to really suggest that the United States is simply not an actor to be trusted in good faith. And it will um, potentially empower the hardliners further down the line. So that's, uh, again, something to watch. And, you know, I mean, the broader consequences, I think, are important, too. I mean, for North Korea, this is just going to be another, you know, another brick in the wall when it comes to their reasons not to negotiate with the United States. They've already seen what happened to Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi after engaging in disarmament agreements with the United States, all right? Both of them ended up dead um, (laughs) directly as a result of U.S. action. And uh, now with the Iran deal um, being unilaterally chipped away at by the United States, I mean, North Korea is just going to see any guarantees from the Trump administration and further U.S. administrations as entirely inadequate. Do you think we might get a reprieve with a new president where people like Trump was just singular? We might be able to go back to the status quo ex ante? Um, remains to be seen. One of the things North Korea could do is just wait out Trump. They could just wait it out until 2020, hope another U.S. president comes to office, one that's more pliable when it comes to negotiations. Um, And, you know, they have reasons to do that. They could continue developing their missiles in the meantime, get better missiles, get missiles that fly to further ranges with higher payloads. They have untested missile engines still that could deliver larger weapons to the United States. So they have a lot that they could still, you know, worry about doing. And the sanctions... While they do bite, uh, they don't, they're not going to stop North Korea's ballistic missile development. That program is already highly quite indigenized. That's all the time we have for today. My guest today has been Ankit Panda, security journalist and host of The Diplomat Podcast. Ankit, thanks so much for coming on the program. Absolutely, Lindsay. It's a pleasure to be back with you. And now it's time for recommended reading, a handpicked selection to deepen your understanding of our bewildering political moment. This week's pick is from McKay Coppins in the Columbia Journalism Review, and it's called What If the Right-Wing Media Wins? Coppins was one of the first journalists to take Donald Trump's fledgling campaign seriously. In this piece, he reports that young people entering the conservative media are being taught that journalistic integrity is dead, and that all that remains is the weaponization of information. This isn't happening in some militia bunker or Russian troll farm. This is at the Heritage Foundation, at the knee of a Breitbart editor who tells the kids that he wants nothing less than the wholesale destruction of the mainstream media. Republicans have been cynically slagging on the so-called liberal media for decades, but at least they acknowledge that there is an objective reality that 
they thought the mainstream media could do a better and fairer job of covering. Coppin's article documents a terrifying conceptual shift from media criticism to media demonization. That's it for recommended reading. Which is produced by Nora Hurley for Rewire Radio. Our executive producer is Mark Valetti. Our theme music is Dark Alliance, performed by Darcy James Argue's Secret Society. And I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein. Tweet your suggestions, comments, and questions to at Beierstein, B-E-Y-E-R-S-T-E-I-N, on Twitter. See you next week. <laughs>